Hello and welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine, led by Chief Medical Officer of the American Lung Association, Dr. Albert Rizzo. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Today we have the opportunity to speak to Dr. Paul Hassoun, Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He received his medical degree from the University of Paris in France and completed an internship and residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, both at Harvard Medical School. Thank you very much for inviting me, Dr. Rizzo. I was intrigued and pleased to see your New England Journal of Medicine article in December 2021 issues that talked about a review of pulmonary hypertension. And uh, certainly in the field of pulmonary medicine, this is a topic that keeps coming up, but probably isn't as addressed as often as it should be. So before we get into the specifics of that article, uh, just tell me a little bit about your your background and how you became interested in pulmonary hypertension. I had a great time uh, writing this paper because it's a passion of uh, many years. So I got interested in pulmonary hypertension when I was a pulmonary fellow at Mass General Hospital in Boston. At the time, I had just finished my uh, clinical training as a clinical fellow and I was asked to, to, to pick a topic. And actually, I, my first direction was control of ventilation. So something that has to do more with the brain and the neurotransmitters, mm-hmm. etc. And then I attended a, a talk given by uh, a person who would become one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Taylor Thompson, who's still at MGH, um, a big name in critical care. And he was working with uh, Charlie Hales, my official mentor. And he gave a talk uh, really one month before I had to choose my research. Um, And he gave a talk on pulmonary hypertension. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me what the pathology is, what really caught my attention. So I went to the head of division and I told him, I really, I'm interested in neurotransmitters, but I'm much more interested in the pulmonary circulation. And this is what uh, decided me to join uh, Dr. Charlie Hales and uh, uh, Dr. Taylor Thompson. And as it happened, uh, my first week in the lab was during uh, Hurricane Gloria. Uh, in Boston, I don't know if you remember that, but uh, so I got stuck in the basement of a historical <laughs> building uh, called the Bullfinch Building at MGH uh, for a few days with um, several guinea pigs, and I started doing uh, cardiac catheterization on these 300 to 400 gram uh, creatures. So you can imagine how difficult it is to go through a juggler vein in humans, but in uh, guinea pigs uh, using magnifier lenses, etc. It was quite challenging, um, but it was very exciting to put a catheter, a silastic catheter at the right. time, into a guinea pig and to measure hemodynamics. So that was my first introduction to pulmonary hypertension. <laughs> very interesting background there to get to where you are. All right. Yes. And uh, so after a year of, uh, I think I must have catheterized about 300 guinea pigs. Um, I um, was very much interested in the hemodynamics. I had reviewed the work uh, work of uh, 
Gournon and uh, Dickinson Richards and Forsman, who had introduced uh, cardiac catheterization of the right ventricle at the time. And uh, this really excited me. But I, uh, at the same time, uh, there were there was Lynn Reed, who was a pathologist at um, the Children's Hospital in Boston, uh, with along with Martin Rabinovich, um, had worked on animal models of pulmonary hypertension and also looking at the pulmonary circulation. But what caught my attention is that at the time in the late 80s, uh, everything seemed to point out to the endothelial cell as the main uh, dysfunctional cell in pulmonary hypertension. And I, I said to myself, uh, hemodynamics are interesting, but let, let me get to the core of things. And uh, I, uh, I decided to leave MGH and go to Tufts University to work with Barry Fanberg at the time, who was an endothelial cell biologist. And so the idea was that if you have a dysfunctional endothelial cells, then you have uncontrolled growth of cells that are under the intima, uh, so smooth muscle cells, fibroblasts, etc. And for many years, I got fascinated by endothelial cell biology and uh, how a dysfunctional endothelial cells could lead to uh, uncontrolled growth of cells that then would um, cause um, major uh, uh, remodeling of the pulmonary vasculature. Uh, no, that sounds like a very good uh, way to get to where, where you are now and explains a lot about well, the interest in the different pathophysiology that we're going to talk about uh, as we go through this. Uh, one, one statistic that jumped out at me in your article before we talk about the, the classifications of pulmonary hypertension was you said that 1% of the world and up to 10% of people over the age of 65 right. have pulmonary hypertension. And unfortunately, I think it was 80% of those lives in parts of the country where they really have limited access, whether it's cost, uh, access to care, things of that nature. So it just points out that uh, many people are not really being treated for what is much more common disease than I think many people had thought. So having said that, uh, I know there's different types of pulmonary hypertension and classifications. Can you kind of just briefly tell us what those are and then we'll kind of break down more information about it. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, this is a really interesting point. And I think this classification of pulmonary hypertension done by the uh, World Symposium on pH, the WSPH, has evolved over several years since uh, the first uh, meeting, which was in 1975 or 76. And right now, uh, so the um, classification has been refined over several, over six uh, World Congress uh, uh, Congresses. And, um, but the classification includes five different groups. And that relates to your question about um, how, how many people in the world are affected by this. And I, I think it, for anybody who's interested or remotely interested in the pulmonary hypertension, knowing and understanding the classification uh, is a, a really a first step. So, and I uh, will go briefly through it. Uh, we have five groups. Group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension. I, I have to say that this classification is based on clinical, pathological, and treatment responses of the various groups. Uh, I would also like to say that uh, we have treatment mainly for group one at this point, uh, just a recent treatment for group three, and then some treatment for group four. 
um, and I'll get back to each uh, to each one. So group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension. So it's uh, what we call precapillary pulmonary hypertension, where by definition uh, the mean PA pressure is greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. Before the sixth WSPH conference, it, uh, the uh, uh, the limit was set. The threshold was set at uh, uh, 25 or greater. And this was uh, changed uh, based on um, a meta-analysis of healthy several uh, thousand healthy uh, individuals, showing that the mean PA pressure of 20 or less is normal, and uh, only um, uh, you have um, pressures greater than 20 is two standard deviations above this uh, number. So this is why on this, uh, during the sixth WSPH uh, conference, the threshold for defining pulmonary hypertension was changed to, to, uh, to uh, above 20. Now for PAH, you also need to have a wedge pressure uh, less or equal than 15 millimeters of mercury. And even this number is a bit high when you consider that the normal, w, uh, normal wedge pressure is about uh, eight to 10. And uh, finally, you need a pulmonary vascular resistance uh, uh, greater or equal to three wood units. So in group one, you have idiopathic PAH, which was uh, called before uh, a primary pulmonary hypertension or PPH. And the word, word, uh, word was, uh, denomination was changed to idiopathic. You have heritable PAH. So these are patients who have a history of pulmonary hypertension or um, genetic mutations, um, somatic mutations. Uh, uh, one of the, the most common mutation here is the mutation affecting uh, the BMPR2 or bone morphogenetic protein receptor 2. And then we have uh, in 1.3, so group 1.3, uh, drug and toxin-induced toxin PAH. Now, I would like to remind, remind the audience that the first um, world symposium, uh, which, which was under the auspices of the WHO, was held in uh, Avion in France. And this was following uh, an epidemic of pulmonary hypertension caused by an appetite suppressant called Aminorex. Uh, there were later other um, uh, epidemics of pulmonary hypertension related to appetite suppressants like the fen-phen and, and redox, which also prompted more uh, uh, meetings uh, on pulmonary hypertension. So to go on, drug and toxin-induced BAH is uh, a cause. Now some of the tyrosine kinases are included in this group uh, that can be used in uh, the treatment of cancers. Mm -hmm. Then uh, a subgroup I'm mainly interested in is PAH associated with connective tissue disease or HIV, portal hypertension, congenital heart disease, schistosomiasis. These are important, and you mentioned that um, uh, many patients around the world are afflicted with pulmonary hypertension. Well, one of the most uh, common cause of pulmonary hypertension worldwide is by, uh, caused by a parasitic disease, schistosomiasis. So just to give you a few numbers, there are about 250 million people affected with schistosomiasis. If you think that 10% of these patients will develop PAH, we have 25 million 
patients, uh, 25 million individuals around the world with pulmonary hypertension related to schistosomiasis. And then you have a group called uh, group 1.5, also under PAH. Uh, these are patients who are very lucky because they respond, respond to calcium channel blockers. So instead of giving them uh, very expensive pH-specific uh, treatments, you can give them um, uh, vasodilators like uh, calcium channel blockers, nifedipine, diltiazem. And the way to identify these patients is to, during cardiac catheterization, to use inhaled nitric oxide or adenosine um, to, um, have to see whether their uh, pulmonary vasculature will respond uh, to uh, a vasodilator. And these patients then can be, uh, if, they, um, if they respond with a certain criteria, can be started on calcium channel blocker uh, therapy. So moving on to group two, group two is uh, due to left heart disease, not congenital heart disease because this is in group one, but group two, left heart disease. So anything post-capillary, any blockage post-capillary, so mitral stenosis, aortic stenosis, diastolic dysfunction, systolic dysfunction. And group two is also extremely common throughout the world. I mean, cardiac disease is, uh, um, is uh, qu quite prevalent in the world. And we have no uh, real, no, no adequate treatment for this aside from treatment of the underlying disease. Uh, so if you have diastolic dysfunction, you can do several things, uh, weight loss, control of systemic hypertension, et cetera. But we don't have uh, any uh, treatment targeted to the pulmonary hypertension that complicates uh, left heart disease. And you have to understand that every time you have pulmonary hypertension complicating a disease, the prognosis is much worse compared to the disease without pulmonary hypertension. Group three pulmonary hypertension is uh, characterized by chronic hypoxia. So you can think about any cause of um, chronic hypoxia like COPD, restrictive lung disease, sleep apnea, living at high altitude. So there are millions of uh, individuals living uh, in the Andes or other high altitude mountains. Um, the uh, people who were born there are naturally selected to survive in such a, um, a hypoxic environment, but uh, um, people moving to, the, the, to these areas may eventually develop pulmonary hypertension. Group four is a separate group, and um, mainly because there is treatment to group four. Uh, th this is related to obstruction of the pulmonary artery. The most common is chronic thromboembolic uh, pulmonary hypertension. And uh, often you don't, uh, these patients don't have the um, initial event that's diagnosed with PE, maybe 50% of these patients have a known past history of thromboembolic disease. But basically the pulmonary vasculature became filled with fibrotic material, which was at some point thrombotic and becomes uh, fibrotic. And these patients benefit from pulmonary uh, endarterectomy. So you've, the surgeon, uh, this is you know, open, uh, open pulmonary artery surgery, so open chest, uh, they find a plane between the intima and the media and go and dissect as far as they can go 
throughout the pulmonary vascular tract on both sides. And this can be uh, a, a complete treatment. Uh, some patients are left with residual disease and we have other options like medical options. Um, some of the pH targeted uh, treatments uh, can be used here. Uh, or balloon angioplasty, where a interventional radiologist would go into the pulmonary artery, open up a balloon in different sections that may need different sessions, so successive sessions of uh, balloon angioplasty. And then the fifth group is a um, mixed bag group because we um, uh, either we don't understand the mechanisms or, or they're multifactorial. So an example is hematological disorders, um, sickle cell disease, thalassemia can be complicated by pulmonary hypertension. Uh, these hematological disorders were in group one um, several years ago, before the, I think the fifth um, uh, WSPH uh, conference, they were moved to group five because we really don't understand, we, uh, it's multifactorial. So it's not just pulmonary hypertension and remodeling of the pulmonary vasculature, but they can have high cardiac output failure from severe anemia. Uh, so shear stress on the endothelium and the, the different uh, etiologies. And then you have in that uh, group five of mixed uh, back disease, you have systemic and metabolic disorders, surcharge uh, disorders, and other complex congenital heart disease. So that, that's the classification. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to know that because when we have uh, fellows uh, coming to the PH clinic, and we have a new patient referred for pulmonary hypertension, the first challenge really is to decide where to place the patient find an underlying disease if there is any, and then target that underlying disease. And if we exclude all the causes of pulmonary hypertension, uh, then you're left with idiopathic. Okay. Now, now you, you make a good point. And, and part of what I was gonna ask next is, you know, certainly the group two and group three, the chronic heart disease, chronic lung disease represent a lot of individuals that come into primary care offices every day. And, and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about and you mentioned the fact that pulmonary hypertension, if it coexists with the, these other diseases, really worsens the prognosis. Uh, so can you talk a little bit when somebody comes in with the exertional dyspnea, which is often some of the symptoms, what should be going through the mind of a physician and what would be some of the diagnostic algorithm that you could suggest to help sort this out? Yes, so this is important because the symptoms, uh, these patients come in with symptoms that are really nonspecific. Um, Exert, exertional chest pain, um, some fatigue, sometimes fluid retention, they don't understand why. Uh, what is uh, really disturbing for a clinician is when they see a young woman, and I say woman because this disease affects women, uh, women much more than men. I mean, the ratio is almost three to one, uh, um, in, in group one at least. Um, and so when you see a young woman with the picture of health coming to your clinic complaining of shortness of breath or having had a syncope after running after a bus, for instance, uh, it's not, you don't think about pulmonary hypertension at the first uh, diagnosis. Uh, it's amazing how many patients are referred to us with the diagnosis of asthma for um, a couple of years and they're misdiagnosed. Um, the clinician has missed sometimes the um, tricuspid regurg murmur or a loud P2. So the diagnosis can be very subtle. And of course, uh, 
all patients who come to our clinic don't have IPAH. So these are very rare patients. So um, it, uh, our goal is really to rule out underlying diseases. And there are diseases that are have uh, that can predispose you to this. So connective tissue disease is uh, particularly interesting. Uh, patients with HIV, I mean, you have to think about other causes of, aside from infection, uh, they can have uh, disease of the pulmonary vasculature and severe pulmonary arterial hypertension. Patients with liver disease, um, uh, cirrhosis or portal hypertension are at risk of portopulmonary hypertension. So it's a really, it's really fun. Uh, you, as a pH expert, you have to be a, a good general practitioner because you need to be uh, comfortable with all these diseases. Sleep apnea is a, uh, also is quite common among the male population, but also women, uh, and uh, can uh, not very commonly, but can be complicated uh, uh, by pulmonary hypertension. You mentioned group two that is extremely common, and I actually enjoy very much uh, seeing. Uh, um, uh, patients with diastolic dysfunction, which is so common when you have uncontrolled systemic hypertension, when you have uncontrolled obesity that can predispose you to diastolic dysfunction and pulmonary hypertension. And the treatment here is really exercise, weight loss, uh, control of systemic hypertension. So it's really internal medicine here. Uh, you, you need to be a very good internist to uh, try to find out what's the underlying problem uh, and focus on uh, what can be addressed. Yeah, as in, as in so many things in medicine, the very good history and physical really can narrow things down a bit. Um, once you get past that and you're talking about testing, uh, is the echocardiogram fairly early as far as one of the tests that help yeah. you determine the yeah, presence? The, sure. The echocardiogram is actually our best uh, screening uh, test. Uh, it is cheap. It can be done in any center. Uh, and it will give you a, uh, a flow of information about uh, what you're looking for. So uh, patients, uh, people or clinicians often focus on the right ventricular systolic pressure, which is estimated based on the tricuspid regurg velocity. Uh, this is not what I focus on, but of course, if it's greater than uh, 30 or 40, uh, you get concerned, but you can first look at the left heart. Uh, you can exclude secondary causes of pulmonary hypertension. You can find mitral stenosis. You can find aortic stenosis, diastolic dysfunction, left ventricular hypertrophy. So it's an extremely uh, useful test uh, to exclude things that are not PAH. And then when you focus on PAH, uh, I look at the more than the RVSP, I look at the size of the right atrium and the right ventricle. And it's unlikely to find a patient with severe PAH who does not have severe or moderately dilated uh, right atrium and right ventricle. And sometimes you can have some, uh, of course, you can find an atrial myxoma on the left, so group two disease. Um, so it is, a, it is a very important screening test for patients who come in with unexplained dyspnea, of course. And I guess in clinical practice, in my practice at least, we use the echocardiogram to help decide about sending people off to get the more invasive cardiac catheterization if there's some suggestion of pulmonary hypertension that can't be explained. Is that a reasonable next step in those individuals? 
Yeah, so um, unfortunately, several years ago, we used to see patients who were treated by their uh, general internists based on the uh, echocardiogram. And this is really nothing uh, to do. What you have to do is you have to confirm the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension uh, for many reasons. Uh, um, doing a right heart catheterization allows you to exclude the uh, HFPAF or diseases of the left heart. Um, but it also gives you information on uh, the actual mean pressure. And uh, we've done studies uh, in the past uh, comparing echoes, the echo findings with um, cardiac catheterization hemodynamic findings uh, done within a few hours of each other. Mm -hmm. So, and we find that the estimated RVSP, right ventricular systolic pressure, can be 20 to 40 millimeters of mercury, either up or down by echo compared to the uh, gold standard, which is obtained by heart, right heart catheterization. So yes, before you do anything, and of course, before you give any treatment, uh, you have to perform a, a right heart catheterization. I know uh, maybe touched on this a little bit. Many people, especially those who have the group two and group three, it's a matter of treating their underlying disease, managing fluid, giving them supplemental oxygen. And then there are some individuals where there has been a role for anticoagulation. And then there's also the targeted pathways that you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about the specific therapies there? Sure. Uh, so you want me to talk about the um, uh, conventional treatment before? To, to, uh, sure, that, that would be fine. Yes. Okay. And, and this is, I'm glad you asked this question because uh, it, for me, it is the first and very important step in, uh, uh, in treatment of patients with pulmonary hypertension. So uh, often these patients, if I'm not talking about group one, PAH, they may come to you with already some RV dysfunction. And so the first sign is fluid overload. And before you send them for a right heart catheterization, it's really important to um, optimize their uh, volume status. And so, we treat, and I take my time. I might take two or three weeks before getting a uh, cardiac catheterization. We diarrhease them. That will make them feel better, just losing the fluid. And uh, I think the role of uh, uh, diuretics is uh, uh, under-recognized. I mean, these, this is an, uh, there have never been studies um, comparing uh, diuretics with placebo for the treatment of pH because it's such an obvious, uh, important part of the treatment. So yes, you have uh, to diarrhease these patients. You have to place them on oxygen if they uh, are hypoxemic, in particular with exertion. One of the first tests we do in clinic, uh, the first visit is a six minute walk test, which can give us an idea of their functional status. It also has some prognostic value in terms of survival, even at baseline. Uh, we give them uh, a specific diet. It's important for any patient with cardiovascular disease to avoid salt and to limit their fluid intake. Um, you often these patients say, you know, my internist told me I need to be well hydrated. But uh, when they come in with uh, evidence of congestive heart failure, this is, they need to avoid salt and excessive fluid. Uh, in terms of general supportive measures, and uh, we'll get to more specific treatment, 
um, as I mentioned, most of these uh, patients are women and some are very young. And uh, so they may be in a, a childbearing age. Uh, and fortunately, pregnancy can worsen uh, pulmonary hypertension. And our recommendation is to use uh, contraceptives for these uh, uh, women of childbearing age. Uh, I have to say that some patients don't listen to us and become pregnant, and we get into very complicated uh, pregnancies where uh, the pulmonary hypertension might get worse, uh, the fate of the mother and fetus are uh, at risk. Uh, so we, we suggest to use contraceptives, um, a referral to uh, counseling and genetic testing uh, is important for group one disease, IP, uh, IPAH, uh, because um, we find about 6% of our patients uh, may have uh, genetic mutations and that has implications on their uh, families, their offsprings. And uh, so they need genetic counseling and uh, the family mem members may need to be tested at the same time. We also insist on uh, vaccinations. Uh, these patients with cardiopulmonary disease, uh, uh, diseases are at uh, risk of uh, getting worse with infections. So, you know, via, uh, Influenza vaccination, pneumovax, etc. COVID now, right. COVID vaccination is important. So this is for general supportive measures. Um, one group I need to talk about is the uh, vasodilator responsive patients. Mm -hmm. We get really excited when we have these patients. They are rare, less than ten percent. Uh, but they have amazing response to, to inhaled nitric oxide during right heart catheterization. And that's exciting for many reasons. Uh, their survival is going to be much better than the typical IPAH patient. Uh, and uh, they do very well with high-dose calcium channel blockers. And um, as long as they respond to uh, vasodilators. So, Every year or every other year, we need to retest these patients with inhaled nitric oxide uh, or adenosine, depending on the, uh, your practice, uh, to make sure that they still respond to vasodilators. And if they don't, then you need to add pH-specific uh, therapy. And before you talk about the different pathways, does anticoagulation still play a role? In oh, yes. Yeah, so I'm sorry, you asked me about That's right. So anticoagulation uh, was uh, recommended uh, based on mainly retrospective studies. Um, I think one was by Valentin Fuster showing that patients with oncumidin uh, had better survival. The other uh, study was uh, on patients with responding to vasodilator therapy, the um, uh, landmark study by uh, Stuart Rich, which found that patients who were on uh, Coumadin had better survival, whether they were responders or non-responders to calcium channel blockers. So uh, Coumadin seemed to give you a survival advantage. So uh, the, the latest recommendations is that patients with IPAH uh, should be considered to be uh, on, anti on anticoagulation uh, with Coumadin, for instance. I have to say that um, uh, my young patients who are active, who don't have necessarily severely dilated right ventricle, I may, not, I may decide not to start on anticoagulation, right. in particular if there are some risks. We know, also know now, um, essentially based on uh, large red 
registries like the German registry by Maria Super, the Compera registry, uh, where patients with connective tissue disease actually have no advantage and may have a harm uh, done by uh, being on anticoagulation. I can tell you that our uh, scleroderma patients, um, we never start on anticoagulation. And the reason is very simple. They end up after a few months having severe anemia and the workup for anemia becomes extremely difficult. Uh, they often have AVMs, small AVMs or telangiectasias along the in intestine, uh, so sometimes not accessible to colon uh, colonoscopy or upper endoscopy. So they have AVMs in their uh, small um, in their uh, small intestine, and they are source of bleed, a very uh, slow bleed, and they end up with very severe uh, anemia and iron deficiency. So we never uh, treat patient, aside from group one, IPAH, we don't use anticoagulation. Then I guess the other group is the, uh, the targeted therapies, the three pathways. If you could kind of explain that, especially with your background of being so interested in the endothelial cell. I think that uh, yeah. points and, it out. Uh, so uh, I have a figure in my uh, review uh, where, and uh, this is what I call the three classic uh, pathways. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, uh, endothelial uh, cell dysfunction seems to be at the origin, or this is what I, um, that's um, uh, my feeling, at the origin of the, of the whole remodeling of the vessels. Now, other people think of outside in, meaning the fibroblast uh, may invade the pulmonary vasculature and create the uh, remodeling. But I like the idea of endothelial dysfunction. So when you have endothelial dysfunction, you have excess release of endothelin, decreased release of prostacycline and um, a decreased release of uh, nitric oxide. So these are either vasoconstrictors, endothelin or vasodilators, prostacycline and nitric oxide. Now you should also remember that any, uh, any of these molecules with a vasodilator has anti-proliferative effect and uh, molecules that are vasoconstrictors like endothelin have vasoconstrictive effect and, um, and uh, pro-proliferative effects. So it makes sense then that if you have excess endothelin to inhibit the endothelin pathway, and I'll get back to this, with prostacycline, when you have a loss of prostacycline, you can use, uh, you can add prostacycline. And for uh, nitric oxide, uh, I'll get back to the pathway, but to get back to the first pathway with endothelin, uh, the, the treatments we have are uh, um, medications that inhibit the endothelin receptor A or, the recept or receptor B. So either dual uh, receptor antibodies, um, uh, an antagonist, or, um, a, um, or you inhibit endothelin uh, receptor A. The endothelin receptor A is the bad receptor in the sense that it is responsible for vasoconstriction and proliferation. Endothelin receptor B, you want to leave uh, uninhibited uh, because it can help with vasodilation and it decreases proliferation. So the three drugs we have currently are ambrisentin, which is a receptor uh, A uh, selective inhibitor, 
and uh, bosentin or mesentin, which, who, uh, which are dual receptor antagonists. Uh, so the problem with uh, embrisentin, or not a problem, but uh, you should be aware of the, uh, the immediate side effect of embrisentin because it inhibits the vasoconstrictor receptor and leaves the vasodilator responsible receptor uh, uninhibited. You can have vasodilation and fluid accumulation, in which case you need to uh, uh, optimize your diuretics. So th this is for the, um, so th these three uh, drugs I mentioned, embrisentin, bosentin, mesitentin, are endothelin receptor antagonists are commonly used uh, in the US at least. Uh, in terms of, um, let me focus on nitric oxide. You can give nitric oxide by inhalation, but it's not practical, it's expensive. So you, if you look down uh, the signaling pathway, the uh, second messenger for ni nitric oxide, uh, the target for nitric oxide is soluble guanylate cyclase, which makes uh, cyclic GMP. So this is the second messenger which causes dilation of the smooth muscle cells. And so to, uh, um, to increase the levels of uh, soluble guanylate cyclase, you inhibit phosphodiesterase type five, which causes breakdown of cyclic, uh, of cyclic GMP into GMP. So this is what we do. We um, uh, use uh, sildenafil or tadalafil as phosphodiesterase inhibitors. You can also use uh, Rio-Siguat, which is a direct uh, guanylate uh, cyclase stimulator that is, um, will work independently of a, um, a functional nitric oxide pathway. So it does not need nitric oxide to, uh, to produce um, cyclic GMP. So that's how it causes vasodilation. And then prostacycline, we have a number of drugs. You can give prostacycline agonist by inhalation, by uh, in, uh, intravenous infusion, subcutaneous infusion, and now orally uh, as well. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if it's available, are most of these patients who require these types of drugs best handled at pulmonary hypertension centers, places that specialize in dealing with these patients? Yeah, I, I should have said that from the beginning uh, in one of the figures in my uh, um, review, I mentioned that if you suspect uh, group one disease, or if you have patients with group two or group three disease, group two or group three disease, but with severe pulmonary hypertension by echo, best is to um, refer these patients to a pulmonary hypertension uh, center right. uh, because you need the um, uh, multidisciplinary um, uh, practice to uh, deal with these patients. And of course, to uh, these drugs uh, are expensive. They need to be approved by the uh, patient's insurance. Um, and, um, and you need to know how to handle these drugs because they have uh, side effects. Right. I also forgot to mention, I mean, I did mention that uh, some of the prostacyclines are given intravenously or subcutaneously. And so they're not as practical as uh, the drugs given orally. So, so based on your obvious experience and, and interest, where do you think the field is going? I think you touched a little bit on it at the end of your review article. Where do you think there's going to be some potential breakthroughs or additional therapeutics in this area. Okay, 
So this, this is what I find uh, most exciting for the next few years or decade. So uh, for the past, um, I would say to 25 years, uh, we've been focusing on these three um, uh, signaling pathways. And we have actually, uh, I think uh, most uh, experts in the field will tell you that we have improved uh, survival in these patients. We've gone from uh, the first report by the NIH of a 2.8 median survival in these patients, 2.8 years median survival, to now close to eight years or 10 years for IPH. It's good, but it's, it's still not very good. I mean, uh, I tell my patients, I don't have a cure for you, but I can, make, I can try to make you survive until we have a cure for this uh, uh, disease. So what I find exciting um, are drugs that are coming up um, in the pipeline that are separate from these uh, three signaling pathways. Uh, there is the um, paper that was published um, in, as I believe, September 2021. Uh, Marc Amber was the first author. It's uh, using Sotatercept. Um, it's uh, the stellar trial. Uh, uh, so Sotatercept is a trap for um, Activin. So I mentioned that BMPR2 is a signaling is disturbed in these patients. And I would uh, have to say that it is altered, not only in patients who have mutations for BMPR2, but in most causes of pulmonary hypertension, you have a decreased um, uh, expression of BMPR2 and decreased signaling through BMPR2. So uh, there is a yin and yang between BMPR2 and the TGF signaling pathway. So this drug sotatercept is a, um, a bind uh, activin, basically. It's a trap to a, a ligand that stimulates the TGF pathway. So the TGF pathway we, is bad in the sense that it promotes, uh, it promotes uh, cell growth and so will contribute to the remodeling. BMPR2, on the other hand, is... Um, um, under the endothelial cell function will keep the vessels in a state of quiescence. So you want to inhibit TGF and promote BMPR uh, to signaling. And so Tetracept by uh, binding uh, activin will inhibit TGF and will stimulate actually uh, BMPR2. So, so this is one thing. Uh, I'm fascinated by uh, uh, strategies to increase BMPR2 signaling. And um, a um, Stanford investigator, Edda Speaker-Corter, um, a few years ago, uh, screened about 3,000 known drugs to find what, drugs, what drug could increase a BMPR2 expression. And out of all these drugs, she found that tacrolimus that we use as a um, immunosuppression drug for patients who receive uh, lung transplant, for instance, can activate BMPR2 and increase its expression. So there are clinical trials uh, related to, to, uh, to, this, um, to this particular drug. Um, I have not talked about inflammation, which is a subject that is very close to my heart, um, in, in particular when it comes to connective tissue disease, but inflammation 
around the vessels seems to be quite prominent. And the French group under uh, Marc Ambert has described uh, almost a neogenesis formation of lymph nodes around the remodeled vessels. And these uh, um, lymphocytes are made of C, uh, B and T lymphocytes. We don't know what they do there, but they probably have some role. Uh, we know that steroid does not do anything uh, to um, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Cyclophosphamide has been tried in scleroderma. It doesn't work. It works in some mixed connective tissue disease. It can, you can have a tremendous reversal of PAH uh, with uh, immunosuppression in non-scleroderma patients with CTD, with connective tissue disease. So I think inflammation is a... Um, is a um, area that we have not targeted at all. We know that uh, cytokines like IL-1, IL-6, um, and other inflammatory, pro-inflammatory cytokines are increased in this disease, and, and they correlate with survival. Their levels correlate with survival. Uh, there has been uh, trials of, uh, for instance, a drug like tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 receptor antagonist, uh, this was a very small trial from the UK, which uh, was negative, but I think this needs to be further explored in larger trials. So drugs that increase BMPR2 expression, drugs that can trap uh, ligands to the TGF signaling pathway, and um, uh, inflammation that we have not targeted yet are uh, drugs of the future, I think. Uh, oh, I, I forgot to mention also drugs like uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, there was a, a large trial uh, called the IMPRESS uh, looking at imatinib, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor used in, uh, in uh, blood cancer um, that, was, uh, that is, seemed to be quite effective in pulmonary hypertension and had a significant decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance. Fortunately, the drug was never approved by the FDA because of side effects. About 8% mm -hmm. of patients had subdural hemorrhages. I think we did not use the proper dose. We rushed into the trial. We did um, many patients uh, gay, um, abandoned the uh, drug uh, because of side effects, uh, nausea, vomiting, etc. So I, I don't think the trial was, um, there was enough thinking uh, before this trial was conducted. But right now, there are ongoing trials of inhaled tyrosine kinase inhibitors um, um, that are maybe promising. We don't have results yet, but uh, that's following. Uh, so what really will cure this disease is that we, if we can kill the cells within the vascular lumen that cause all the obstruction, that this is really the secret and this right. is the holy grail. So it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done, but some promising these therapies on the horizon for, for this population. This, this has been uh, enlightening for me, and I'm going to again refer our listeners to your December 16, 2021 New England Journal review article. There's just a wealth of information there. Uh, we only touched the surface these last uh, uh, 35, 40 minutes. So uh, I want to thank you again for your time and uh, hopefully uh, more to come in this field. Thank you very much, Dr. Rizzo. It was a sheer pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. For more pulmonary and critical care content, visit our website, consultant360.com.